Holy guacamole. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming. Wow, where do I begin? Uh, first of all, it's astonishing to me uh, that you would come out in this blizzard. Yeah, how pathetic. How unbelievably pathetic. Thank you for coming. And for those of you who didn't come, you're dead to me permanently. Uh, there are, this is actually amazing to me to say that for the first time in what, 22 years that we've been doing this, we are live streaming this event. And yeah, this is, um, and so to those of you at home who are, you know, lurking, uh, perhaps disgracefully in your underwear, um, I just want to say shame on you, okay? These people came here, they got dressed up, I don't know why. No, honestly, I am so thrilled that we made this happen. I'm thrilled that there are people uh, watching at home. It bothers me a little bit that I can't see you, because I could see all of these people, and they, they look great. It just makes me feel like it's live TV, like makes me feel like, you know, Ralph Cramden on Chef of the Future. Do you remember that? Humana, 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 Chef of the Future. Uh, anyway, uh, it, it's, it's just terrific. We've wanted to do this for a long time. Uh, okay, now, I just have to try to explain. This is a particularly special Socrates in the City event. You know that we do these all the time. This is particularly special for a few reasons that I will try uh, to explain. First of, first of all, in 20-something years, it's the first Greek Orthodox guest that we've had at Socrates in the city. Because I have no time for those people, okay? No, I am so excited about this. We've had an Eastern Orthodox guest, but not Greek Orthodox. Um, and it's also, it's, we rarely do anything that's like very overtly theological or religious. But I just thought, well, a year ago... Uh, when I read uh, Eugenia Constantinou's book, I just said, next year, at the beginning of Lent, we're going to do everything we can uh, to get her uh, to come here and to talk about this book. And so I, I just cannot begin to tell you. But uh, the second reason, not just because we have a Greek Orthodox uh, guest, but the, the second reason this is particularly special for me is because we have an unbelievable number of Greeks in this audience. Uh, <laughs> Lipon, Lipon. Tithapite. Otitelete. Okay, I, I'll, I'll, I'll do it in English from now on, but I just want to let you know. I know you. I know you're here. Okay, I hear you. I see you. Uh, actually, some of the Greeks who are here, I've known most of my life uh, from Danbury, Connecticut. Uh, I don't want to, I never would want to embarrass them by calling them out publicly. Uh, because I, you just don't do that. But, for example, Dino Kalitsa, so I'm not going to mention his name. <laughs> but uh, Dino and I have known each other since I was nine, and I live to embarrass my old friends. So I'm not going to call him out, but I just want to say it means so much to me that he is here. Uh, another person I'm not going to mention, Maria Baklas, Chris Neofatidis, I'm not going to mention them publicly, you know, so that's just between us. But the idea that people I've known my whole life from the Greek community in Danbury are here. It means a lot to me. So this is very, very uh, special. Um, now, part of the reason that I'm excited about having so many Greeks at this event 
uh, is that I just found out, and I don't know, this is crazy, but Socrates was Greek. Did you know that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of famous figures in history, turns out they, they were Greek. Uh, everybody wants to be Greek. Most of you know Sammy Davis Jr. converted to become a Greek. Did you know that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he did, he did. Some people think he converted to Judaism. No, he, he just wanted to be a Greek. So Sammy Davis uh, did, did that. Of course, most of you know Jesus was a Jew. Okay, we know that. We're going to cover that tonight. But uh, a lot of people, well, a lot of people already know. Of course, his mother, the Theotokos, was Greek. Um, Panagia, I mean, her name's the Greek. So everybody knows his, his, his mother was Greek. A lot of people... You know, claim she was Italian, but that's, uh, as the Greeks say, that's Roman Catholic propaganda. Okay. Burdes, all right? Okay. All right. Okay, so the point of this evening, about a year ago, I read the book that we're going to discuss uh, tonight. I say without any hyperbole, which is, of course, a Greek word, um, with no hyperbole, it is genuinely one of the most amazing, brilliant books I have ever read in my life. I say that. Um, now, I remember I had the author, uh, Eugenia Constantino, on my program a few times, uh, and, I, and I just remember thinking, next year, the beginning of Lent, we've got to try to get her to come from San Diego to be my guest here in New York at Socrates in the City. Uh, unfortunately, as some of you know, that did not work out. So tonight, instead, we have her sister, I can't even read this name. Vazdeki Kamilokola. Am I saying that right? Am I saying that right? No, just kidding, just kidding. We actually got Eugenie Constantino, the real person, to, to be here tonight. And I honestly, I just can't tell you how grateful I am that she made the trip from San Diego. Um, just thrilled. Okay, now just to say a few words um, about her. Um, this is difficult. She has a lot of degrees. She is a, a very humble person. She tries to fool you into thinking she's a normal person. She's really brilliant, uh, but she talks like a normal person, which is rare <laughs> among brilliant, highly educated people. So she holds a bachelor's degree in religious studies and a master of arts degree in practical theology from the University of San Diego. She got a master's of theology degree from Holy Cross Greek Orthodox School of Theology in 96 where she specialized in Orthodox theology and patristics. She also received another Master of Theology from Harvard II Divinity School. <laughs> from Harvard Divinity School, 98, where she specialized in the New Testament. Uh, she had previously earned a Juris Doctorate degree, okay, doctorate, from Pepperdine University School of Law. Uh, she's been a member of the California Bar since that time. Uh, she got another PhD at the Université Laval, Quebec City, Canada. Um, it's a little ridiculous. Uh, she's been teaching biblical studies and early Christianity at the University of San Diego since 2002. Previously, she taught New Testament at a Holy Cross Greek Orthodox School of Theology. She's led Bible studies, taught lectures on the Bible and Orthodoxy at parishes, conferences, retreats, seminars over the years. She's married to Father Costa, who is a Greek Orthodox priest. So... That means, to many people, she is known as Presbytera. Um, but uh, to me, she's just an unbelievably delightful woman whom I now am privileged to call friend. And she is my guest 
Eugenia Constantino, welcome to the stage of Socrates in the City. You know, the best thing about you is that you're a lot of fun, because you've been on my program a few times. Not to some people. Um, and, I, and, I, and so it just, it just makes me happy to have you here. Seriously, thank you for coming from San Diego. I know that's not exactly around the corner. Um, I read your book a year ago, and I said we have, we have to do this at the beginning of Lent, because when I read the book a year ago, I said this is the kind of a work that is, and we'll be talking about this, but it's a work of tremendous scholarship, which I want to talk to you about. It's also shockingly readable. It's totally readable, although it's brilliant scholarship. But it's also a work of devotion. There is no question, uh, I publicly identify as a Christian, and there's no question that reading this book drew me closer to Jesus. I can't say that a lot about a lot of books. And so... Um, I want to talk to you about this book, but the first question that I will ask you, uh, Jeannie, you let me call you Jeannie, um, is how, what in the world possessed you to, to think about writing this book? Because there's just nothing like this. Well, thanks for, first of all, Eric, thank you very much for inviting me and for hosting this beautiful event. It's so important. I appreciate the fact that you uh, like to engage in the big questions of life. And so I really appreciate the Socrates in the cities and so events, so thank you for inviting me. Um, I've been talking about the crucifixion of Christ for a very long time in different parishes. I was invited, often spoke about it during Lent, and I just felt like it was necessary to write a book about it. But I realized that, actually, I wrote a draft, and it was so dry, I said, I really need to uh, present this differently so, punch, punch it up with a few jokes? Yeah, not the way you do, but sort of try to present it in a way that was more engaging. So it's not enough simply to give people information. You want to give it to them in a way that really speaks to them, that makes them feel as though they are present, because these were real people and real events. And one of the things that I've been told again and again, uh, the Bible studies that I've led, is that I make the Bible come alive, and that was my goal with this. And to make it, yes, scholarly, so that people can see that I'm not just talking off the top of my head, but at the same time, something that anyone could understand. Well, again, the, the, the reason it blesses me and shocks me is because there's so little of this. I mean, I basically try to do something similar in everything that I write, but I have never seen it done in the way that you did it, with the events of Holy Week, the, event, the events of the Passion. And I guess I, I just want to ask you just a little bit about your biography. Obviously, you're married to Father Costa, and so obviously you take your faith seriously. You can't be a presbytera in the Greek Orthodox Church without taking your faith seriously. But what, what was your journey, if, if we can start there, that got you interested in this, you know, just going way back to your childhood? Were you raised in a home where faith was at the center, because both of us know that many people in the Greek Orthodox tradition, it's, it's a cultural thing, and it, it, they tend not to go too deep. It's just like, I'm Greek, I hang out with the Greeks, and we go to the Greek Orthodox Church. So we're all for it, but to really take it to this next level, how, like how did that begin for you? Well, yes, I was raised in a home with a very devout mother especially, 
my father, our family was involved in the church, but I know what you mean. This is one of, by the way, Greek, you said you've had Eastern Orthodox, I suppose you mean Frederica Matthews Green. Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Russian, we're all the same. Oh, well, I know that. I was just church, making the point right? that because she's of not the Greek. Greeks. Yeah, that's true. Frederica's she's a friend, Greek. and she's not Greek. That's a friend. So, <laughs> yeah. so yes, it's it's unfortunate that sometimes there's a presumption. I think your father made the same presumption that if you come to the church, you will develop that relationship with Christ. And I think that doesn't happen for a lot of Greek Orthodox, and it's important that we make sure that that is developed. So in my particular case, we were brought to the church. I was very active in the church. And uh, when I went to the University of San Diego as a student, I was um, had to take religious studies courses. And this is where I really learned about the early church and about the Bible. And so also it's encounters with priests that I met who were very strong in their faith and very inspirational. They had a big influence on me too. My mother introduced us to the Bible a lot when we were children. My Which, mother I mean, that, that's Bible sort of stories. rare in, in, in the Greek Orthodox world. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. That's just interesting to me. Cause, you I, know. Don't, I don't know how rare it is, but um, I think for a lot of the people, maybe of our generation, their parents were immigrants. My parents were born here, and so maybe that was a little bit different. They were already Americanized. They weren't struggling as much just to survive. So that might have some have have had something to do with it. But my mother was very devout, and she wanted. She, we talked about Christ all the time at home, but it wasn't you know theology. We didn't have any priests in our family or anything of that nature. But there was, but, but you 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 weren't you weren't indifferent to the faith. It was no. very serious and central. I to think your... it is for all Orthodox, almost all Orthodox. It is central. They even if they don't go to church as often as they should, they feel it deeply, and this is something which is. Uh, experienced by sometimes people go to Greece and they think that people aren't very pious or devout, but this Greece has been Christian for almost 2,000 years and it's very deeply embedded in the culture in a way that other people can't really recognize. Um, it's my understanding that uh, the New Testament is actually written in Greek. Uh, and and by the it's way, my God's grandmother, language. He didn't write it in Croatian or German. That's right. It is God's uh, language. But my grandmother said Jesus was Greek, because she when said, she did, because she said when I go to church and the gospel is read, it's in Greek. It's in Greek, right? That was her. Thinking. That's right. No, I'm not, I'm serious. This is what she said when my father told her that Jesus was Jewish. She was totally shocked. Yeah. She was yeah. totally shocked. And her name was Eugenia too. So yeah. Um, I, I was shocked this as well. Is a, this is not an uncommon thing uh, in certain cultures. Uh, in the uh, in the German culture, of course, my mother's German. Um, you know, the idea that Jesus was not Jewish that kind of went a little wrong, as you know. Uh, so it's not unimportant. But anyway, I just so and at what point? Uh, I don't know how many years you're married to Father Costas, but. You obviously took this seriously as a young adult. Before I met him, yes, you I did. was yes as a young adult. As I said, I had I, I was exposed to serious courses on the Bible in the university. I, I met a young priest who had come to help with the parish. He also inspired me, talked to me a lot about prayer and things like this. I was very involved. I was a youth director at the church, and the more I learned, the more fascinated I, I became. With not only with the Bible, but with orthodoxy, it's such a deep 
faith. There's so much rich tradition in Orthodoxy. The connection to the early church is so powerful. Uh, this is what really attracted me. I was reading a lot of writings from early church fathers. See, that's the key. And that's what makes your book so special. Because I think, uh, obviously, in you know the, the Protestant world, there's a tremendous disconnect. Yes. And it's, 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 it's heartbreaking to me. It's one of the reasons I wanted to have you here and to talk about your book. Because it's, it's wrong to be disconnected uh, fr- from the early church. The, you know, the church didn't... Uh, start uh, with when the Reformation Luther. started yep. or yep. at Azusa Street even more recently. Um, some people kind of act like, yeah, it's, you know, it, leaped, it leapt from John, you know, in Revelation to Azusa Street or whatever it was. And when you look back, and but that's part of what makes your book so amazing is that you bring things out that... Um, Part of it is you're linking it to, to the early church. But the, the other thing that, that really amazes me, and I want you to talk about it, is that you studied Jewish writings of the first century, early first century. That, I guess you would kind of assume it's been 2,000 years. Somebody would have covered that. You... I mean, I really was amazed, I can't say this enough, at, at you brought things out, I want to get into some of the specifics of this, and my jaw just dropped to the floor. I said, I can't believe that I've never read this before. Well, part of the, you know, you asked me why I wrote the book. I not only wanted to inform people and make these events come alive for them, but I also wanted to bring into the awareness of ordinary people these amazing details that are usually known by Bible scholars, but they don't go to the rest of the populace. And the reason for this is because Bible scholars and other scholars, people who teach at universities, tend to write for other people who are experts in the field. Why? Because you want to get tenure, you want to get published. My book, even though I I could not write it, the publisher didn't want a lot of footnotes. I said, I have to have footnotes. People who read this have to know where to find this information for themselves. I wanted it to be something that was useful even for scholars. Yeah. So I wouldn't just write it, you know, like without any footnotes. But the fact is, because this is a popular book, this will have no respect in the scholarly world. Right. That's the truth. So join the club that's of the like truth. C.S. Lewis and, well, you know, that, uh, other, I'd be happy to be in other, that club. Well, that's that the point. No, that's the point. But that's... It, it, is yes. that... I mean, They're I, not respected in no. the scholarly world, the right. world of academia. Right. What they want is something that people who write and publish in certain publications with certain publishers at such a high level that ordinary people can right. understand them. But some of it is so fascinating. So I wanted to gather all that information synthesize it, express it in language that people can understand, and then present it to people who would really care about it. And look, I I just want to say it again and again and again. You've done that so successfully in this book that it's almost hard for for me to believe. I was raving uh, to my wife just last night, reading some things, and I thought, it's extraordinary to me how... There's two things that you do. Uh, First of all, you take us... Through the Passion Week, uh, from from the raising of Lazarus to the crucifixion, and you do it, uh, it's like uh, a, a movie or uh, or a TV program. There's levels of details and things that 
amazingly, when you read the Gospels, you don't get that. For some reason, you don't get it. Maybe because there's four of them, and there's something here, and there's something there, and there's nobody to kind of point out, hey, did you, did you catch this piece? Or did you get? We kind of read over it, and we read over it. So you really do bring it to life in a way that is just absolutely astonishing to me. But your ability to, to, to ferret out things that I had never, ever seen before. Um, let's talk, for example, about um, you, you mention uh, that when uh, Abraham sacrifices Isaac, so whatever it is, 1800, 1900 B.C., whenever that was, as a Christian, I had no idea that there was much of a tradition in Judaism. I mean, talk about that. Okay, so that event that Christians call the sacrifice of Isaac, even though he was never sacrificed, is called the binding of Isaac by Jews. And it's very important. Um, It's important because of not simply, we always think as Christians, we think about Abraham, we admire his faith. Even though he loved his son, he was willing to sacrifice him because the Lord directed him to do that. But the important person, the more important person in the Jewish tradition is Isaac because of his willingness to be sacrificed. And in that way, he's a type of Christ. So in the early church, this is how they presented um, ideas about Christ. Christ was understood as the person whom Israel knew in the wilderness. When God communicated with his people, it's not the father, but the son who communicated with his people. This is something that's well-known, well-preserved in Orthodox Christianity, but has been lost in the West. So when it says in the Gospel of John, for example, that the word became flesh and tented among us, it says he, be, he dwelt among us, it's the word tented. It's saying that the person who was with Israel in the wilderness, in the form of a cloud, it's a pillar of fire, the one who gave them water, water from the rock and gave them manna, that was the son, not the father. And that's obvious throughout the New Testament, but it's not something that's recognized by most Christians because it, you don't have that continuing ancient church tradition, especially in the Protestant side, but also among Catholics. Well, also there's been a... Um, be careful what you say. There's a few Catholics here. <laughs> careful. I, I'm, by the way, I retired from the University of San Diego last year. I stopped teaching there, but I'm teaching at the Franciscan School of Theology, and I have a lot of Catholic students. They're Franciscan monks and just seminaries. Don't, so I don't, don't have any say it publicly. With them. Don't say it publicly. I don't have any no, I. Yes. We joke. We joke. I'm sure more than half the people here are Catholic. Um, there are so many things in this book. There's no way to do it justice in a, in a conversation like we're going to have. But there's so many things that I thought I, I couldn't believe that I had never seen this before. Um, so when you talk about Isaac, part, part of what you're talking about is um, is what you were able to discover from Jewish writings. So part of it is that you're a scholar that studied early Jewish writings, including Jewish writings before the time of Jesus and during the time and immediately after the time of Jesus. And so you're, you're pulling things out and you're telling us, oh yeah, this is, this is what they were thinking at that time, which in every case corroborates the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. That's right, because, because when the early church, you know, the followers of Jesus before the crucifixion, they thought he was this Messiah, of course, 
But after the crucifixion, all of these ideas that were already present in Judaism about who the Messiah might be right. came together. Right. And this is the most fascinating thing. I didn't really finish explaining Isaac, so let me just try to draw that out quickly. So Isaac, of course, he was already a young man when Abraham was going to sacrifice him. And Abraham was very well, elderly. Wait a minute. You say, of course, most of us don't have that idea. Well, the, he most of us think kid. of him as a kid. Okay. Well, let's say. But you know that that's wrong. He was older. Yeah. But not very old. Yeah. But certainly, even as a little child, he could have run away from his father, who was over a hundred years old, right? So he could have. But in the Jewish tradition, it doesn't say this in Genesis. But just think about this. The Jews had this story in their tradition, even before it was written down in Genesis, and they talked about it and talked about it and they talked about it and they realized Isaac could have run away, but he didn't. He could have fought his father, but he didn't. So they came to the conclusion that he accepted. He learned, of course, not until he got there, that he was going to be the sacrifice, but he was willing to be sacrificed. And that's why he's a type of Christ. In other words, he's an image of Christ from the Old Testament, something that would be fulfilled in the New Testament. But the fascinating thing is that the Jews associate Passover very much with Isaac. And that was something that most people See, don't know. See, that's the know. big deal. When I learned that from, from your book, I thought, what? How is that? Like, that's, yes. that's heavy. It is. That's because, a big deal. Because of this, for this reason, because they have a tradition that... Isaac was offered for sacrifice on the 14th day of Nisan. Nisan is the month. So on that day is the day that Isaac was offered for sacrifice, and this is because they have a tradition about what day Abraham started walking to Mount Moriah and how many days it took them to get there. That was in Genesis. So this day is the day before Passover, because Passover happens on 15 Nisan. And they came to associate Isaac and his willingness to be sacrificed as so powerful that even though Abraham didn't actually sacrifice him, the fact that both of them were willing to go through it, that was almost expiatory, or it gave merit and almost forgiveness of sins to the Jewish people. And it is because of the merits of Isaac that they were let out of Egypt by Moses. We think of Moses and Passover, but for the Jews, it's very closely connected to Isaac. So Jesus also is crucified on the 14th day of Nisan. Who is the father who offered him in sacrifice? God the Father. So that's the connection. You see, one of the things that's so powerful, that was powerful for me as a Christian reading these Jewish sources, is how it's so obvious to us about the meaning of Christ's life and sacrifice, but the Jews are still debating it because they don't believe in him. And it reminds me of what St. Paul said about the veil being over their eyes because they, they don't read the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, the way we do. So when you think about the fact that, the, uh, that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, something that we as parents cannot begin to imagine, the Jews have discussed this story endlessly for 4,000 years now. So that, what do they say? Why is this story in the Bible? They can't understand. Why is this story? Why did God ask this of Abraham? He knew what Abraham was going to do. He knew that Abraham would pass the test. Why is the story even in the Bible? And we know, because as Christians, we realize 
that this was a foreshadowing of how God the Father would give. When he asked of Abraham, he didn't demand of Abraham, didn't go through with it. But what happened later, God would give his only son for the world. I mean, even the link of the date. Yes. When you say, you know, the 14th of the month of Nisan. That's right. That's the Jewish tradition of when Abraham offered Isaac. Offers Isaac. That's right. And the Passover is the same date. The follow, well, the, technically the 15th day. That's the day of preparation. Right. So that was the day Jesus dies. Passover is the 15th. So right. Yes. And then, you know, 1,400 years later, Jesus is sacrificed on, on same day. Nisan, 14th right. of Nisan. And so now we understand and the meaning of the Lamb of God, don't we? Right? That That's how, how powerful it is. But as the centuries passed... And Jewish scholars and sages and rabbis and teachers thought and thought and thought and thought about this event. Some of them actually came to believe that Abraham shed blood of Isaac. Some of them actually believed that Isaac was sacrificed and rose from the dead. So why would Abraham, remember that God promised Abraham that it was through Isaac that his posterity would be blessed. That was not through Ishmael, but through Isaac, right? So all of the descendants, the, like the stars of the sky and the sands of heaven, were going to come through Isaac. How was that going to happen if he was dead? So some of the Jews sort of theorized that Abraham knew that if God gave him this son at his old age, and his wife's old age, he could also make him alive again. So some of them actually had the idea of the resurrection of Isaac. Well... So, it's, it's not just, I mean, you have two things happening, and I don't think you mentioned it really in, in the book, but you, you have two things. When I read the book, and again, the second time I read the book, on the one hand, like I'm astonished at what I'm reading, and then I'm astonished at the fact that I've never read it before, and then I have to process, how is it possible that so many of us have missed these things? And... One of the reasons for that is, of course, that, um, you know, the, the, the Jewish leaders uh, who, who didn't follow J- Jesus, there developed a hostility toward those who said Jesus is the Messiah. So they did a number of things like take Isaiah, uh, I'm sorry, um, yeah, Isaiah 53 out of the, the Jewish lectionary, which I want to talk about in a minute. So there's this hostility among certain Jews and they're interpreting things that's kind of anti-Christian. Right. But uh, as my friend Greg Denham, who I, I think may be watching on live stream, uh, has pointed out to me recently, um, it's amazing how when Constantine became emperor that he really dramatically cut Christianity off from its Jewish roots in a, in a very anti-Semitic way. In other words, basically gentilized the Christian faith. So you have this double divorce kind of going on where we, the centuries pass and we've completely lost touch with, with what everybody would have known in the first or second centuries. Well, the, but I don't think it had anything to do with Constantine. It simply had to do with the fact that the very first believers were overwhelmingly Jewish. But as it moved into the Gentile world and more and more Gentiles joined the church, what they call the Greeks, Right, the Greeks joined the church because more and more Jews right. rejected Jesus. The ones who were going to accept him, it was a very difficult thing to accept 
that the Messiah died by crucifixion. This, this is still the number one reason why most Jews don't believe Jesus can be the Messiah, because they believe he was cursed by God. So, and remember, Paul struggles with this. Why didn't more Jews accept Jesus? He struggles that in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He struggles with this. So the church slowly over the ages became more and more Greek, more and more former pagans joined rather than former Jews. And so I think just these things were forgotten. And then Judaism sort of cut, out, cut us out. They excommunicated the followers of Jesus. And they, the church sort of lost, to, in some degree, touch with its Jewish roots. But I will tell you that those roots are very closely preserved in many ways in the Orthodox Church. A lot of things that we do in Holy Week are reflected, reflect that, like the Messiah, son of Joseph, the idea of Joseph, the connection with Lazarus, and even the, all of the scripture readings of Holy Week in the Orthodox Church actually preserve many of these associations, but the Orthodox don't necessarily understand the Jewish implications of those, but it's there. Well, one of the things that you do in the in the book, um, and honestly, we we can't do it justice. I, I'm just so amazed at what you've accomplished here. Um, but one of the things that you do that I found particularly extraordinary is because you're a lawyer and you've studied law and you've studied first century Roman law and and first century Jewish priestly law. Because you've dug into this stuff. You're able, and you do in the book, lay out exactly the process of how Jesus came to be crucified. And, and I have never, really, it's like, it's like watching a thriller. I've never seen it presented this way because y- you realize it can't happen, it can't happen, there's no way it can happen, it can't happen. They try this, that won't work. They try that, that won't work. They try, and there's this, you, you're just watching the plot and you, you lay it out. I don't want to talk about that, but it is amazing to me how when you follow the narrative thread, because we think, oh, that's just what happened. Right, right. But you actually take us through the legal minutiae, the, the ramifications of each step and how it was possible for these uh, leaders, we're, we're talking about the, the, the chief priests who despised uh, uh, Jesus to bring this about. So for, first, let's talk about the, the chief priests. You paint a picture, and again, brilliantly, of the tremendous corruption of the temple system and the chief priests. It was known at the time. Jews wrote about it. You, again, ferret out that information. Talk about the temple and how it had become deeply corrupt. Yes. The temple in Second Temple Judaism um, had become very, very corrupt. Now, this is the second temple that was built after they returned from the Babylonian exile, maybe around 510 or 520 B.C. And very shortly thereafter, it seems that the high priesthood was corrupted. People were acquiring the high priesthood through bribery, even before the Hasmonean kingdom. This is what was happening. So they, it became highly, and after once, when there was no, no longer Jewish kings, it became also especially politicized. The Romans knew 
by the first century, when the Romans were involved from the year 63, they knew that to control the Jewish people... 63 B.C. 63 B.C., the Romans took over Judea. And they put, uh, shortly thereafter, they put Herod the Great in charge. And he chose the high priest himself. And this is something, but he was following a pattern that had happened even before him during the previous Jewish kingdom that only lasted about 100 years. So if you're going to choose somebody to be the high priest, it would, we like to think they would choose someone who's very pious or very holy, but that's not how it works in real life, right? They chose people by bribery. So the priest, high priesthood was controlled by a very, very small group of people who actually weren't from the high priestly family. It was supposed to be hereditary. And not only that, when they were chosen as high priest, they weren't anointed. As we know from the Bible, the high priests were supposed to be anointed. They weren't anointed. They were given their vestments. So there, had, there was much corruption. Because the temple was the only Jewish temple in the entire world, that's where all the Jews went to sacrifice animals. It was the only place on earth where animal sacrifice could be offered. It became the center, really the religious center, the heart of Judaism, a mecca for pilgrims and, of course, for money, for the sale of sacrificial animals, for the purchase of wood and incense and all kinds of things that were necessary for the sacrificial system. So it attracted a lot of corruption. And by the time of the first century, and even, even before then, it was controlled by a very small group of families, and the chief priests were the ones who became, the chief priests and the high priests became extraordinarily wealthy because of their connections. So it's kind of like this group of very, very powerful, corrupt elites. Not as powerful as Big Pharma and Big Tech are today, of course. (laughs) Uh, No, but it's kind of, you know, we joke, but it's so fascinating, the pattern of when you have that kind of power consolidated. I mean, you talk about, and, and, and another thing, when you talk about the temple, oh my goodness, the, the, just the picture of, of, of when you really get an understanding of what, what the was temple like. was yes. and the wealth and the business, and it, it, it is overwhelming. Yes, it is. It's overwhelming. And there was an elite group of people very small group of who people who were obviously very politically savvy yes. working with the Romans That's right. to ensure that nobody would mess up what they had going. That's right. But they, they were the Jews weren't unique in that. They, that's how the Romans managed their whole empire. Right. They um, enlisted the aristocracy in every city and every location to work with them so that they would keep the masses under control. So the ordinary people were very heavily taxed. They were suffering a lot. Meanwhile, a very small elite group of people in power in Jerusalem were living very nice lives, very wealthy, extravagant lives. And there's a story about one wife of a high priest. She didn't want to, you were supposed to walk barefoot in the temple. She didn't want to walk barefoot to the temple. So they carpeted the whole way from her house to the temple. So she, you know, this this kind of extravagance. These are the chief priests. Meanwhile, ordinary people were suffering and going hungry. And the ordinary people knew it. So when the Jews finally revolted against the Romans, they also revolted against their own religious leaders. 
and murdered many of the wealthy, and including one of the high priests. But that didn't happen until after the time of Christ. You're talking about 70 AD. Yeah, 66 to 73, the Jewish war. But even in the years leading up to that. But yes, there was tremendous corruption, and they wanted to preserve their power because that was where they got their money and their influence from. And Jesus comes along and cleanses the temple. He's making a statement, and he calls them all robbers, You've made my father's house into a den of robbers. They And he was powerful. They knew he had a following. We, we sometimes think about Jesus as having, oh, just 12 disciples. Are you kidding? He had thousands of followers. And they knew that he had the potential to bring them down. And they were going to make sure that didn't happen, no matter what it took. Well, that's the, the other thing that, again, what, what you do so wonderfully is you do bring this to life and you made me understand many things that I had never really understood. I've just glossed over the top of them. But exactly how this went down. I mean, you say one thing in here about, um, I mean, I don't want to leap ahead to the crucifixion, but just the idea that on Palm Sunday, we've all heard sermons where People say, oh, on Palm Sunday, everybody greeted him with Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And a few days later, they're saying, crucify him. And you make clear that basically, I mean, that's a nice theological idea. We're all guilty. Yes. But the reality was that the simple people celebrating him on Palm Sunday were mostly not the tiny clot that was the mob calling for his crucifixion. I'd never known that before, but you you make it really clear how that kind of went down. I've heard sermons like that too, and I find it reprehensible because, first of all, it it paints the Jewish people as kind of nonsensical. First, they love him on Sunday, and then on Friday, they're calling for his death. For, For what reason? It doesn't make any sense. But I also explained where, how that that the calls for Jesus to be crucified were orchestrated by the chief priests. The people who were determined to get rid of him, they're the main actors in the death of Jesus. And even though he is opposed by a number of Jewish leaders, most of the Jews at the time regarded him at least as a prophet, if not as the Messiah. How could you not? When they saw all the things that he was doing and they knew that he loved them, he would he, he cared about them. And many of the religious leaders were so corrupt and they really only cared about themselves and their position. They didn't have very much love. Many of the people didn't have too much love for the average... Jewish leaders didn't have too much love or concern for the average person. So the ordinary people knew Jesus, and they didn't just turn their... for no reason suddenly reject him. But that's been a popular trope yeah. over the centuries. Well, that's what's so fascinating it's, to it's me. It's led to I... a lot of anti-Semitism, I, I'm sorry to yeah. say. Well, uh, unfair. The, very unfair. The, um... So, so, so walk us through, because what, what fascinated me is that when you describe about, and some people will know this, but the, the, the chief priests have determined, I mean, the level of, again, it's like a movie, tremendous cleverness, genius to try to figure out how do we trap him? And it was not easy. And so they were very, very dedicated to figuring out we can't do it here or here because all the people love him. We've got to do it. We've got to do it this way, this way, this way. And then to bring him, I mean, to bring him to uh, to Pilate. Yes. 
And then basically, they had to, get, they had to twist Pilate's it's arm. It's open, and well, that you get there. But I'm saying you start with the fact that basically Pilate is, you know, what do you want from me? Right. It's like Joe Pesci in Goodfellas. It's like, <laughs> you know, he's like, hey, what do you want from me? Uh, Why are you bothering me with this? What do you this? want from me? No, like, uh, you know, I do. He's basically saying, like, this is your, this is your thing. This has nothing to do with me. Uh, I am the Roman, was he the procurator? No. He was, he was just a governor. Procurators came later. Correct. Thank you. I read that in your book. Uh, <laughs> but he basically says emphatically, go away. In other words, you want me to do something, I have zero authority to do anything about this. This is an internal issue. Right. Thank you very much. Good night. Right. Exactly right. So they, you see, the Jews had a lot of authority. They had authority over all the Jews in the world. They, they were given by the Romans the right. The Romans saw the Jews as a nation. So whether they lived in Rome or Babylon or Alexandria or Asia Minor or Greece or Palestine, the high priest as the leading person among the Jewish people had authority over all Jews everywhere. And in the synagogues, we see this in Acts, they would sometimes beat Jews and punish Jews whom they thought we see them doing this to Paul and to Sosthenes. They beat them in front of the Romans, right? So they were allowed to exercise jurisdiction in religious matters over their own people. So when they come to Pilate, Pilate realizes that they don't have a charge. Pilate just can't put people to death. He has to follow Roman law. There has to be a violation of Roman law for him to even hold a trial. Right. So, you know, when we get stopped for a speeding ticket or something by a, a policeman gives us a ticket, the ticket alleges what statute we violated. Right. The, that was the same thing in Roman law. Pilate wasn't just there to rubber stamp their decisions, just bring somebody. Now, now I'm glad you brought up Pilate because a lot of Bible scholars have actually said that the presentation of Pilate in the New Testament is not genuine is not correct because we know but these are theologically very liberal scholars yeah, to question the new testament that's right you well, read that's them. not that's not surprising i don't take them seriously yeah, but, but you're a scholar I, you have to i want to show how really they're not thinking clearly through the process so they don't they're not following it the way i you know presented it but here's what they they're thinking they're saying well either he already knew who jesus was and decided to put him to death or that the gospel portrayal is not accurate. So in the beginning of my book, in the introduction, I described the discussed the historicity of the gospels. I thought that was important yeah. to lay that out. But it's because we know that Pilate was very tough and very ruthless. So they right. say, well, he wouldn't have been um, so careful about not condemning Jesus. He wouldn't have been trying to release Jesus the way the gospels describe. But if you really think about it, if he, first of all, he cannot put Jesus on trial without a Roman charge. And the first thing the Jewish leaders say is, uh, is this, he says, okay, why are you here? And they say, oh, well, what, what do you want with this man? And what do they say? If he were not an evildoer, we would not have brought him to you. So evildoer is not a crime. Right. Okay. So he realizes immediately, and this he says, take him away and judge him according to your own law. They had the right, right. to whip Jesus and up to 40 times. But okay? not to kill him. That's right. But they want him dead. 
So no, that's this is, this why is what I'm saying. This is the conundrum that I just found. It's like a, like a, as I said, it's like the plot of a thriller. They need him to be dead. Yes. But they do not have the mechanism. They themselves cannot put him to death. Not legally. They could have well, secretly murdered him. Right. So why don't they? That you say it because they obviously because, you write about it, yeah. Because well, but if you ask your audience there, well, why don't they put him to death? They want him publicly disgraced and humiliated. He's so popular. That's right. But this is what I'm saying. This is the kind of stuff that, as I was reading the book, this is coming out to me like this makes sense. I, I didn't get this before. He was so extremely popular that if he had just been killed, they would have turned him into a martyr. They, they, he would have been celebrated. They wanted. Pilot to kill him in such a way that he would be forever disgraced and humiliated and categorized as not conceivably the Messiah That's right. because he was crucified. They were very successful in that way. Yes. But they also wanted to distance themselves from the act. So they could say the Romans did it. Right. We didn't have anything to do with it. Right. That was Rome that put him to death. So a lot of people will say, well... Pilate was, you know, killing, putting a lot of people to death, and he was, but not somebody that he believed to be innocent. And it's clear because he knows these people. He was governor from 26 to 36, and this was the year 33. Pilate has worked with these people. He knows them very well, and he's not going to simply rubber stamp and order the execution of somebody without a... He has to answer to his own superiors. He has to keep records on what charge... Do you bring this man here? Oh, he's an evildoer. Where is that in a violation of Roman law? So there is actually really good reasons for his hesitancy, not to mention other more serious reasons for his hesitancy. Well, let's go back. So first, um, they arrest him secretly at night yes. on purpose. Well, that's, helps. that's where Judas comes in. Judas is helpful. Judas wasn't necessary, but he was helpful. They got lucky with him. They got lucky that Judas approached them. They didn't go looking for a traitor. They didn't know where Jesus was spending his nights. They were afraid to arrest him publicly because the people loved him. So when Judas comes forward and says, what will you give me if I betray him to you? Then they, Judas is the one who leads them to the place on the Mount of Olives where Jesus and the disciples were spending the night. So they're able to arrest him in the middle of the night, put him on trial in the middle of the night, find him guilty, and by Friday morning, he's standing in front of Pilate. Okay, now... Uh, let's not rush ahead here. So, so they arrest him. Yes. They they take him away to the house of Caiaphas. Annas or Caiaphas. 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 Okay. Annas was there too, but it's the this okay. house of Caiaphas. So there's a church there, by the way. You know. I'm not surprised. You Pres- can see Presbyterian it. church. <laughs> it was an Orthodox church. Now it's a Catholic church uh-huh. called Saint Peter of the Cock Crow. Wow. Because Peter was outside of the courtyard. Yeah. Warming his hands, okay. denying Jesus. All right, so this you brings... can go there and see the courtyard. It's wow. pretty awesome. Whoa. Yeah, you should really um, do that. Okay, so you, one of the things that you mention, and again, I was, you know, to use the British phrase, gobsmacked when I read this. I said, how have I never seen this before? You write in this book, and it's right there in scripture, and I must have read it many times, never saw it, that Peter and John are the only ones that kind of follow Jesus, the others scatter, that he's arrested, he, they follow to see what's going on, and they follow and follow to the house of Caiaphas. And so Jesus is taken inside, and there's a sham 
trial. It was, you make it very clear, the trial violated Jewish law. But they didn't care about well, that. Well, obviously. But, gonna, any trial that happens in the middle of the night, we can be pretty right. confident is a sham trial. But you talk about this, again, you're a lawyer, you talk about there's several ways that it violated Jewish law. But what, what blew my mind, what I couldn't believe that I'd never seen before, is you say that Peter doesn't get in the gate of Caiaphas's courtyard, but John does because John knew known to the, the high, high priest. priest. I thought, it's known what? To the high priest. It's in the scriptures. What? Yeah, it's known but, I mean, to the it's high in the priest. scriptures. But how? Yeah. I mean, we think of this, oh, there's just a bunch of bumbling fishermen or something. Yeah. You're telling me that John, the beloved disciple, was known to the high priest. The high priest is, is as big a deal as yes. it gets. Yes. How is it possible? that John, humble John, was known to well, the high priest. Because of that little detail, some scholars have said John did not write the gospel because how could this be possible? But we do have a historical fact, again, that's preserved in the early church tradition that when John died, he was buried in priestly vestments. That is preserved in a letter that was written from the Bishop of Ephesus to the Bishop of Rome, telling him that John, when John died. So I know the people say, well, could John, the beloved disciple, couldn't. How could he be? That means John was a priest. That means Zebedee was a priest. And the reason for that is because... His father was a his priest. His father, James and John, So how exactly they knew the high priest, we don't know. But it's not impossible because the ordinary priests of which there were at least 10,000, some people say as many as 18,000, ordinary priests who served in the temple served on a rotation basis two weeks out of the year and all the major, the major feast days. And so they couldn't really earn their living from the temple the way the chief priests did. So they were fishermen and they were farmers and they were potters. They had trades and occupations. Right. And then they would come to the temple to serve when it was their turn. So we don't know how it was known, but that is what it says right. in the gospel by the eyewitness. So but, that, but that's what's amazing to me. It's words, there yeah. in the scripture. But you kind of pass over. And, but you just kind of, you know, yeah, and then right. I think, wait a minute. John knew Caiaphas or was known or by Caiaphas? He was known. It's unbelievable. Well, at least he knows the girl at the gate. She knows right. him. Right. So I don't know. Maybe he was familiar, but... For some, well, it's, it's interesting to imagine that, right? But somehow they were in these circles. Maybe because, you know, among the priests, uh, they had run into each well, other. Well, whatever it is, I'm whatever just telling is, you, when you write about it in your book, I thought, I can't believe I've never even seen this People said there's no before. way he's a priest because he's a fisherman from Galilee. Yeah. But we do have that evidence from the early church that tells us that he was buried wearing the priestly breastplate that what yeah. the Jewish priest used to wear. Well, in any event, so the trial happens at, at the, the home of Caiaphas, and that itself, you, you really do very cinematically and beautifully tell the story. It's, it's fascinating. Um, uh, and, and, and they get Jesus to say, uh, in effect, I am he. They, 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 they get him to say that. To, to admit divinity. But they don't really trick it. Maybe they think they tricked him into it, but obviously he, he's in full control and he decides to do this. So now they have what they need. 
Okay. He says it because the high priest puts them under oath, a specific kind of oath. I abjure you. Abjure you. And that is like the opposite of our right against self-incrimination. They had the right to force people to incriminate themselves. Right. They put them under so oath. So this couldn't happen in America. Couldn't happen. Well, who knows okay. these days, but right. it doesn't look like it. But right. they had the right. He puts them under the oath and forces him to testify. And in other words, if Jesus doesn't say it, he will be found guilty anyhow. So he says who he is. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Living God? And he says, "You said so." So why does he say that, Eric? Why does he just say yes? He doesn't say yes. He says, "You said so," because it means that first of all, that the words of his his identity came out of the high priest's mouth. The high priest cannot say, "I didn't know who Jesus was," because he said the actual words. That's the most important statement of the church. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. So those words come out of the high priest's mouth, and Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, and furthermore, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power, coming on the clouds of heaven. And that's, Jesus sealed his fate. He knew they were going to find him guilty anyhow. So he might as well say the truth to them. So nobody could say we didn't know. Well, what's interesting to me, you, you talk also about how the high priests were under these tremendous requirements they couldn't do this they couldn't do that they they couldn't even enter and, a house and one thing they could the... never do is mourn publicly tear your clothes or whatever and the high priest he does that. tears his clothes yes. in total contravention yes. of what he's supposed to be able to do it's it's it's, yes. it's as dramatic as it gets yes he does that on purpose of course yeah and St. John Chrysostom says to add force to the accusation so he says this is blasphemy and he's never supposed to tear his clothes even if his own parents died but right. he does it because he and the rest of the chief priests and the members of the Sanhedrin are determined that Jesus should die. So, 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 this, is the, so this is when they're like, okay, now we're going to take him to Pilate. Well, now they've, they've justified the death penalty. In uh, their minds, they've justified the death penalty. Did you notice that when they bring him forward, they, that's not the first question they ask him, right? When he's brought forward... Uh, they bring a lot of witnesses, and they finally get two witnesses who say this man said he would destroy the temple. That's very key to the story. It has it goes back to the cleansing of the temple and his disruption of the temple cult. Yeah. That's why they were afraid of him. Now Jesus never said he was going to destroy the temple. He said that they would destroy this temple, meaning his body, and in three days he would raise it up. But once they start with this. Now they can have a trial. Unless there were two witnesses who agreed on a charge, they couldn't even begin the trial. Then they have the two witnesses that they probably got them to agree on their testimony because it took them all night. They couldn't get two witnesses to agree. Right, right. And then, then the, now the high priest says, what do you have to say for yourself? Now, why is the question about the temple, why does that lead to the next question, which is, are you the Messiah? That's something that most people don't know. Because in the Jewish tradition at that time, and among the prophets, they associated with the the Messiah with someone who would come and build a new temple. And this is in Zechariah. And there's a term for the Messiah in the Jewish scriptures, or kind of a nickname, branch. A root will arise from the Jesse. So as soon as he says he's the Messiah, that's how they can, in other words, 
Otherwise, you don't understand why does Caiaphas suddenly ask him if he's the Messiah? Because these witnesses said he claimed to destroy the temple. That's the connection there. Well, that's what I'm saying. There's so, there's so much in so, here so much. that I have not seen before. And we again, we can't really do it justice here. But So they take him to Pilate. Pilate says, not interested. And he sends him. He's thrilled to find out, oh, he's a Galilean. And I don't have any jurisdiction over Galilee. We're in Judea. But guess what? Herod, who has jurisdiction uh, over Galilee, he just happens to be in town. So why don't you take him to his house? Yes. So they take him to Herod. Yes. Herod was happy to see him because Herod wanted to see him. Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee or king of Galilee. And he happened to be there for the Passover. That's, by the way, that's why Pilate was in Jerusalem for Passover, because he wanted to control the crowds. He normally wasn't there. So, yes, they take him there, and Pilate's hoping to just pass off Jesus. This is, he's got a very busy schedule, doesn't want to be bothered with his guys. He realized that, that the Jewish leaders really despised Jesus. He hadn't committed a crime. Pilate never heard of Jesus before. We can be confident of Actually, that. Actually, that's another big thing this in the is, book. When I read that, yeah. I thought... Pilate had, and you prove this, Pilate had never heard of Jesus before. Oh, why would he? Where did Jesus go preaching? He didn't preach to Romans. Right. He's preaching in synagogues right. and in houses and in fields and places where Jews were gathering. And this, this is the reason for the question about paying tribute to Caesar. They were hoping to get him to say, yes, you shouldn't pay the tax so that they could report him to Pilate. Because if somebody had gone to Pilate and said, Pilate, there's something you should know. What is it? Where there's this rabbi who's going around preaching to big crowds. And so, why are you bothering me with this? They had to have a reason to report him to the Romans. Jesus was never political. Right, so if they had been able to say, Get him he to said, yes. don't pay the tax to the Romans, right. they'd be like, open and shut, he's they, guilty. They would have brought knowledge of that to right. Pilate, and a Pilate at least would have been aware of him. But at this point, Pilate knows nothing about Jesus. So he realizes that this is kind of a religious, for the same reason as a religious dispute. You cannot go, if you belong to a certain church, you cannot sue that church in court because they're teaching something that disagrees or the pastor's teaching something that disagrees with the faith. That will be thrown out of the courts. They don't deal with that. Right. So the Romans had the same, they're not going to sit and okay, deal with Okay, but so they sent him to Herod. Yes, they sent him there. And Herod similarly is not really interested in he doing anything. He wants a show. He, heard he that wants Jesus to see a miracle. That's right. And he doesn't get it. Jesus just, the Jewish leaders are furiously arguing against him. Pilate's figuring if this guy deserves to die, Herod would know. You see, that's very important because Jesus never fomented rebellion of any kind. If, there, if he was suggesting rebellion, Herod would have put him to death. Herod wouldn't have really hesitated to do that. So when, when Bible scholars today say that the portrayal of Pilate is not accurate because he willingly would have put Jesus to death, because that's presuming that Jesus was suggesting some kind of revolution or a revolutionary message, and Jesus was never doing that. Jesus was saying, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, these kinds of things. He was never a threat to Rome. That's why, he, that's why Herod never did anything about him. So, so let's talk this through then. So... Uh, Pilate says, leave me alone, sends him to Herod. Herod uh, is, I guess, annoyed that Jesus won't do a miracle. Well, he was hoping he would do a miracle. And so... I think he concluded that Jesus was... that all those stories I heard about Jesus were not true. Because what person 
if he was going to save his life, wouldn't do a miracle, right. just save his life. So he probably just figured that these things were exaggerations. So, remember that what his chief steward, Chusa, was, uh, is the husband of Joanna, one of Jesus' disciples. She's named in the Gospel of Luke. So see, that's another one of these details that you have in here. I was kind of amazed. Yeah, I just so thought, knows. boy, the stuff yeah. that you found that's there in the Scripture. So Herod m- mocks yes. Jesus. So this is part of the whole thing. He mocks him, puts him in royal robes. Um, is, is he the one that put the crown of thorns? No, or that, his, was, his... that was done later. After that, okay, the so, so now we go back yeah, to, to Pilate. Pilate. You're right. And Pilate's like, oh, you're, ba- you're back? Why are you back? Yeah, he was hoping. He, 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 this is, this is, uh, so the chief priests are back, and, and, and what do they say now? In other well, words, okay, the, so Pilate sees that they're back, and he was hoping that Herod would take care of it for him so he wouldn't have to deal with yeah. this, be bothered with this. But that causes him to be less likely to want to put Jesus to death because he figures, and he actually says this, Herod didn't find anything wrong. He didn't find him deserving of death. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to punish him. I'm going to satisfy you. I'm going to chastise him. I'm going to have him scourged. And that's when he sends Jesus to be scourged. And he's hoping to placate okay, their now, hatred toward Jesus by having Jesus scourged. We have to be that clear. Be that was the hardest part of the book for me to read uh, when you describe the scourging. So Pilate is such a um, practical, cynical, soulless human being that even though he knows Jesus is innocent... To pacify these furious, powerful people that have come. He says, I will do what I am able to do, which is to say, I will have him scourged, which right. is worse than, than being Terrible. whipped by the Jews. Oh, it's horrifying. Worse. We don't need to go into it. But he does that hoping to end it there. He does that to save Jesus's life. Yes. Ironically. Yes. Because it, as bad as it was, it's better than being crucified. He didn't think Jesus... He, he might have thought this. Well, Jesus must have annoyed them for something. Maybe he deserves to be punished for something. But he hadn't violated Roman law. Okay? But, but, but so he's effectively saying, I can do this. Yes. And so I will do this. So, and the, so maybe, the maybe horror, I'll make them happy and right. they'll, they'll just leave So the horror of the scourging takes place. Uh, Remember and, also... They accuse Jesus of being a king. When, when he, they first say he, he's an evildoer and Pilate doesn't do anything, he goes out, talks to them, comes back inside the praetorium and says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So there is that idea of a treasonous charge that they concoct. They change it from blasphemy to a charge that does carry the death penalty. But Pilate does not think that Jesus is a threat. So he doesn't buy that. He realizes, because the first thing out of their minds is, he's an evildoer. Out of their mouths is evildoer, and then they concoct this idea of treason. So he's not buying it. So So he has Jesus scourged. So Jesus is scourged, and then he questions Jesus. Okay, so he had questioned Jesus before, but he comes back out and says, I find no crime in him, but, you know, I will go ahead and have him scourged. So he has him scourged brings him back. And um, Jesus is very bloody from the scourging. 
And this is when Pilate says, behold the man, look at him. Isn't that enough for you? But he, rather than mollifying them, it seems to inflame them. Crucify him. This is what really, it's not enough to see him like that. This is what, he says, why? What has he done? He, this is what Pilate does not understand. So this is when they say, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. So one of the, again, the people don't seem to understand the way Pilate is portrayed in the Gospels is exactly correct. Pilate was reluctant to do anything with Jesus because from the beginning, Jesus did not behave like a guilty person. He wasn't begging for his life. You say that several times in here. and, And the most dramatic example of it, which again, most of us have heard, but you managed to paint the scene so beautifully that it it strikes with fresh power that Jesus has been brutalized in in a way that's difficult to read. And Pilate is now questioning him and and in a sense saying like, like, hey, your kingdom is not of this world. What is going on here? Like, give me, me, in a sense. That's after the scourging. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. After the scourging. So Pilate was always reluctant, but after the scourging, when they say he claims to be a God, the son of God, now Pilate is really concerned because Jesus was not afraid of Pilate. And that was obvious. Now he goes back inside the praetorium and says, where are you from? And Jesus doesn't answer. And now Pilate gets angry, right? Don't you know that I have the power to crucify you or the power to release you? Because he's not used to people not responding to him. And then Jesus says, you have no power unless it was given to you from above. Now Pilate really doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. Well, that, but that's it's what's so, so I'm just saying, like, if somebody's an agnostic and they're reading this and they, they read your book, you, it's hard to conclude uh, anything other than that there is no one in the universe like Jesus. Because if you have been brutally scourged, so horrific... And then you're talking to the man who has power over life or death, and you respond with this level of clarity and truth and fearlessness yes. that you have no power. To tell Pilate... You have no power. You have no power no, over me right. unless it has been given you from, from above. above. If I was Pilate, I would have been scared to death he, he was. of who am I talking I to. I think he absolutely was. Because he was, in effect, the emperor. He comes to the province. Every provincial governor came to the province with the imperium. That means with all the power of the emperor. The power of life and death over everybody in the province. Immensely powerful. And Jesus was not afraid of him. That's why I think Pilate was unnerved by Jesus' presence from the beginning. But once they say he claims to be the son of God, then he was really afraid and then with now G, Pilate really wants to have nothing to do with Jesus. So this is when he suggests Barabbas. But see, right, again, this is, this is what, what I keep yeah. noticing is that the way, the way you do it so masterfully is like, it's like a movie. Like the plot keeps turning and turning and turning. So now Pilate is stuck. Right. And he comes up with one, an, an idea. There's another way for me to get out of crucifying him. But the, he, he never found him guilty of anything. Right. He didn't really have to crucify him. What he was trying to do, and this is the ironic part, 
he was trying to help the Jewish leaders save face because they had brought Jesus to him. And he knew because he worked with these people. These were the highest, on the highest level of Jewish authority in Jerusalem. And he knew that if he just released Jesus, it would be an embarrassment to them. So he's figuring, okay, how can I get out of this in a way that doesn't, they can just say, well, the Romans released him, but really he's guilty. He's trying to help them. And that's why he feels stabbed in the back when they don't appreciate that. Okay, so and you have to explain. Yes. He's, he, 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 he's the he, one who sees the Barabbas. Yeah. He remembers uh, the prisoner release that you, have you Jews, have a, have a custom to release a, a prisoner, prisoner at Passover. At Passover. That's right. And not necessarily that that happened every year, but he knows he's been there long enough. But he he's come up custom. with a novel way of getting way. out of this horrible mess. Shall I release for you the king of the Jews? No, 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 not him, but Barabbas. Meanwhile, Barabbas really is a danger to Rome. That's the last person he would want released. But now he's suggested the prisoner release, and they've put his, him, him, him into a bind. And when they insist upon Barabbas, he says, well, what am I going to do about Jesus? But just because he has to release Barabbas because a riot was beginning, right. doesn't mean Jesus has to die. Right. It doesn't mean that Jesus has to right. what, what about Jesus? Well, crucify him. But why? What wrong has he done? What evil has he done? He actually asks that they insist. Right? And this is when, and again, this is where it ends, but oh my goodness, the idea that it keeps taking these twists and turns and twists and turns, it is like a, a, a gripping uh, legal drama. You're just on the edge of your seat, and I've never seen it presented that way, which is one of the reasons this book is so amazing, but only one. But you, you, so he's then in this situation where he's thinking, look, I do not want to crucify him. I can't really crucify him. Yeah. He's, he's starting to pilot. You, it's, it's conceivable that he's thinking like, yep. I'm playing with fire. I don't know who this man is. I'm a little frightened. And then the chief priests play the yeah. trump, trump card. card. That's and right. And they say... That's right. Because, well, what happened, of course, we have to, you know explained that the reason why he thought he might be a god is because the Greeks and the Romans had these ideas, they had these mythologies, these stories, plays. It was very much a part of their culture that sometimes the gods came down from Olympus and looked like people. And if you offended them, even just insulted them, let alone scourged them, they could come back and take revenge. You'd be sorry. So Pilate is very afraid. He thinks it's very possible that Jesus is a god. So... He says they, they're insisting, the Jewish leaders are insisting that Jesus be crucified. They concoct this little crowd that's outside the praetorium because the temple is just yards away. And they're in charge of the temple. This is one reason why this group is not the average ordinary group because ordinary Jews are down in the city below. They're getting ready for Passover. They have a million things to do. They're not just hanging around outside the Antonia Fortress you know, just because. So that group there has been instructed, and one of the scriptures, one of the gospels says that, has been instructed to shout for Barabbas and to shout for the crucifixion of Jesus. So they create the mob that shouts and they then, for his crucifixion. But the, but, but, but the trump card that they now play, and then, yes. this is just amazing to but me. But he says first, he says first, take him away and crucify him yourselves. I find no fault in him. And then they say, 
they say, what, you can take it. Yeah, there. I think you wrote the book. Uh, the, only reason I, the only reason I know the answer is because I read your book last night. Um, well, you say it because it's, uh, well, it's they, so amazing. They say, he's, he's disgusted with them because he knows Jesus is not guilty yeah. of a Roman crime, but right. they keep pushing and pushing. He says, take him away and judge him. Take him away and crucify him yourself. He, he wasn't giving them permission to crucify him. He's just saying, I don't want anything to do with this. And they say, if you don't crucify him, you are no friend of Caesar. And Amazing. Yes. I mean, the, like the levels of hypocrisy are astonishing that as if they gave a damn about Caesar. He's their enemy. That's right. That's but they're using this. When they say we have no king but Caesar, that's blasphemy. They have committed uh, on, blasphemy. On their terms. On their terms, yeah, that's that, blasphemy. That's what's so, I mean, I'm saying so there's amazing. so much drama here but, that it's, it's, it's hard to take in. That but, they would yeah. say to him, then you are no... Fr-. They're threatening him. him. They're threatening him, but he knows... This is... You see, when the Gospels were written, the people who wrote them, they weren't thinking, well, 2,000 years from now, somebody's going to read be reading this book. They were... The, the people who were alive in the church at the time knew all the backstory of the things I'm telling you about. That they knew. So what did they know? And what, the, what, what they knew was that Tiberius Caesar was notoriously paranoid, like most of the Caesars were. They were always afraid of getting murdered. And he had put to death one of his closest advisors, a man named Sejanus, on the charge of treason. And that had happened only a few months before, maybe the year prior. And that news had come to Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders knew it. And with this, you are no friend of Caesar. Sejanus was friend of Caesar. Okay, that's a title of like a person right. who was given special privileges and honors by Caesar. So Sejanus, who was friend of Caesar, a very close advisor of Tiberius Caesar, was put to death by Tiberius. And a lot of people who were part of his circle. So by saying to Pilate, you are no friend of Caesar, they were saying, if you don't kill Jesus, we will tell Tiberius that we brought a man to you who we told you claimed to be a king, that's treason, and you didn't do anything about it. So maybe you won't kill him today, but we're going to tell Tiberius, you're going to be recalled to Rome, and he'll take care of you there. So this is why immediately after they say this, he ascends the judgment seat to sentence Jesus to death because he knows it's going to be Jesus or himself. Maybe he would save Jesus, but eventually they would make sure, because they were so determined to put Jesus to death, they would have sent a delegation to Rome, they would have reported to Tiberius, they would have gotten rid of Pilate that way, and then with the next guy they would have made sure that Jesus was put to death by crucifixion. Uh, this is so fascinating. Have you, have you ever thought of putting this in a book? <laughs> it's really... Uh... You really should. You really. I know it's a lot of work. There's so much else in here that we don't have time for. Uh, we're really out of time. I want people to be able to get a, a copy and to get it signed by you. Uh, final quick question. Are you writing, I know we talked about this, a sequel called... The Resurrection, the of, Resurrection, the King of, Resurrection of the King I, of Glory. I haven't started it, but I did all started the research for it. So I hope to, to do the same with this. And then there will be a third book, but I 
We'll leave that for the future. Well, uh, can you give us a hint of, of what that third book might include? The Nativity of the King of Glory. The Nativity? Yes. You know that happened before all this other stuff. <laughs> okay. Again, I was trying to put it You're going to do like the prequel context. third. Yeah. Um, a... Jeannie, I'm sorry we're out of time, um, but we have a patron's dinner following this. Uh, I think... Um, it's uh, all that is left is to ask uh, this crowd uh, to give a warm a round of thanks to my guest, Jimmy Constantino. <laughs>